Kim Vudin. Welcome to Milo's Music Parlor, a live music speakeasy and podcast show brought to you by Milo Records New Orleans and itsneworleans.com. Every week we bring to you in our live audience a taste of the musicians who shape the New Orleans music landscape, from the living legends to the young upstarts to those burgeoning national and international acts making the extra effort to stop here in New Orleans, all of whom are performing live music to enjoy the rich musical history of the city that continues to inspire and influence musicians everywhere. Milo's Music Parlor is a member of the family of shows on the podcast network, itsneworleans.com. to you live from Tassology, an art and music cafe here on O.C. Haley Boulevard in the heart of Central City. Today, we're joined by Alexandra Scott. Originally from Virginia, Alexandra Scott and her dog Jackson have been part of New Orleans on and off since 2000 until she reclaimed it as her home in 2008. She calls what she plays dreamabilly music, and she's one of the singer-songwriters in town who've paved the way for non-jazz musicians here in New Orleans. Allison Fensterstock of the Times-Picayune writes, As a writer, Scott has an intuitive poetic gift for expressing how things can be tragic, absurd, and achingly beautiful all at once. Her songs are often deceptively simple with a powerful sensory payoff. Litanies of abstracted words and phrases string together like tiny flags on a line. They sneak up to deliver an unexpected emotional kick and a peek into her strange, lovely, big-hearted mind. Hi, Alexandra. Thanks for coming. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me. I love that set. It was a beautiful set. It's very emotive. I've noticed a lot of your music is very um, effective at expressing your own personal emotion. You release your most recent album, I believe, is I Love You So Much. I love you so much always. Always. <laughs> and you pay homage to a number of friends who passed away just shortly before that album was recorded and released. Before, during, and as a matter of fact, immediately after, yes. What was that process like of translating your sorrow almost in whole into a recorded work? Well, it was really necessary. I booked the recording time, um, honestly, because I was desperately sad because I had lost, I believe, nine people. Um, and I had just reached a place where I didn't want to do anything. I, I Just a, a very low, sad stagnant place and for me the recording studio is just one of the happiest most easy and creative and fun places I can possibly be and Rick Nelson who co-produced the um, record with me is he's my brother from another mother about 15 minutes after we met each other we started insulting each other and <laughs> calling each other Good names and making stupid jokes well I mean like <laughs> like you would with a friend you've known for ages. And um, so I just thought, I have all these songs, I'm gonna book some time and I'm gonna start making some work because that will make me feel better and making work makes me feel alive and I wasn't feeling very alive at the time. Mm -hmm. And then as I began to make the work, I began to have a conception of what the project was and that was when I thought, okay, I'll put together an Indiegogo. So. So you kind of set a goal for yourself by 
booking some recording time, and then you knew you had material. I had something like 27 songs written. I write okay. a lot, Knockwood. Um, it was kind of like I was throwing a hook up out of a hole where I was and saying I'm going to pull myself up out by making this record. And then in the process, I started healing something in myself that was hurt and then also was able, I think, hopefully to pay homage to these people that I had loved so much and still do. And hopefully to pay forward everything that they had given to me um, by making something. The process of recording tends to be redundant. You have someone telling you to do the same lick five times or sing this part uh, a couple of times more. Did that not, and then you listen to it, right? And then you clean it up and then you check for, you know, you, you listen to one mix and try and perfect it. When you listen to this album over and over, or you hear it on the radio, does it evoke sadness or joy? Well, I'm not sure either. Well, I, I have an interesting relationship. Uh, interesting might not be the word. I have a particular relationship with my music when I'm recording it. As long as I'm actually recording it, I'm deeply, deeply attached to it. And it doesn't matter how many times I'm making a take or how many mixes I'm listening to. I'm completely interested and it has my full attention and as soon as it goes to press as soon as it's shared with the world at large it's like I cut the cord in a very f profound way um, and it never means the same thing to me again which is actually really sad I always dread that day a little bit I mean I'm always huh. really excited to share the it the baby is now out of the body yeah I think so um I mean, and I mean, it would be no good to make it and never let other people hear it, but it's always a little bit sad because it's never going to be mine in the same way again. And in order, I think, to expose it to that many people and that many people's opinions and that many people's ears, maybe I have to let go of that kind of deep, deep attachment to it. But so when I hear it, sometimes... I'll hear it at somebody's house and I'll be like, oh, that's a really good song. And then I'll be like, oh, that's my song. Um, so it's good to I, like your own music afterwards. Well, I, I have had the opposite happen too, where I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have done that in that mix. <laughs> <laughs> but that's with earlier records. Yeah, I've just found it fascinating. You know, like uh, there's like a Phil Collins song that he wrote about a true to life robbery and uh, at his house where his wife was assaulted. Um, and it's a pretty famous song, and I just, I'm always fascinated that people can kind of transfer a pretty traumatic moment and then talk about it through music and then share it and then play it over and over and hear it over and over. So I thought that was a fascinating process, and thank you for sharing. Um, and then I want to I wanna rewind even further. Uh, I did a little digging about you. And you do, despite having very prolific amount of work as a singer-songwriter, you also had a drone punk ensemble. <laughs> yes, I did. That was an homage to Brian Eno. Yes, that's one of my favorite records. Hi-Fi Sky. Hi-Fi Sky, and the record was called Music for Synchronized Swimming in Space.
you've tested it yourself, correct? It, it worked when you... Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> totally works. Um, and it was an homage to music for airports, as anybody who loves Brian Eno will know. Um, <laughs> that came out 10 years ago this year. Um, and that band was probably my biggest loss to Katrina because we all ended up in different places and weren't able to... We tried very hard to continue the band for about two years. Oh, so it was based in New Orleans. Yeah, it was a New Orleans band. We um, we were an ambient Cajun slowcore punk band, if that Had makes to be sense. the first. Had yeah. to be the I first. I think the first and only, really. <laughs> um, we were a lonely style. But <laughs> it was... You, you can hear it on my band camp, the records up there. And we would take um, little bits of like an accordion solo from say an Amade Ardouin record. the melody like play it backwards and then slow it way down and then I would sort of solo around it and play it on um, like the ebo which is a an instrument that you hold it above a guitar string and it vibrates and makes a very strange hmm. sound or I'd play the theremin what um, was the reaction in New Orleans what was your audience it was actually response? well liked uh -huh. um, I think it would probably be even more well-liked today because there's a bigger community for super weird stuff. Um, and how's that journey been? From be You've been here a while, 2000, so 15, on and off. 15 years, yeah. 15 years. What was it like to be a singer-songwriter 15 years ago, and how's that changed? It was today? a lot harder when I got here. Um, I mean, when I moved here, I was doing less traditional stuff than I do today, and more, I had a an electronica band, like sort of trip hop and drum and bass out of DC. We were signed to a label there. And my records were more, um, my, my solo records, I think, reflected that a bit more. And oddly, the, like when I look at the scene today, I sort of came full circle and, and got more interested in the roots of what I had come up doing, which was sort of a simpler style and it was it was actually a little bit of an uphill battle I, f I felt very much like it wasn't quite the right place for me to be I mean I don't even know doing 15 years doing. ago where you would play were you playing on Carrollton Frenchman? Station okay. a lot no I think that would have been a hard bummer sell, for the right? partying people on right. Frenchman right, right. <laughs> and for me <laughs> uh, but there were a couple weird um, band hookups where different managers would set me up with very, very talented traditional like New Orleans bands. And it was just a giant disaster because my songs are pretty simple, but they always are just a little bit weird. And it doesn't work to have like a trad New Orleans beat underneath it. You need somebody who can kind of play rock or who has listened to a lot of rock. Yeah, definitely. I was just thinking, babe, why do we love and hate? Why do we have to wait for things to get better? Why do we hope and pray for what comes so easy? 
Uh, to change channels a little bit, you're a Reiki master. Yes. And you like to perform, is that the right verb, Reiki on pets. Mm-hmm. I like to work on animals um, and people, but animals primarily. Explain to me what Reiki is. Reiki is universal healing energy, um, meaning anyone can do it. I mean, if you have an animal and have ever calmed your animal with touch you're probably doing some form of it it does no harm it's now is it a type of massage no or it's it just um it's energy pu- work okay it's is there any kind of physicality involved or no not necessarily i mean i prefer to have my hands on someone when i work on them but you can do it with your hands off if that's more comfortable uh-huh um, do you generate income from this, or is it a passion, a, 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 a little moneyless both, yeah. passion? Okay. And the dogs pay you, because Milo, uh, Milo will need to see you. I mean, <laughs> I don't know any dogs who have their own checking accounts, but this dog you, does. This dog runs my house. Really? Yeah. I mean, my dog <laughs> runs my house too. Yeah. <laughs> Most of my money goes to my dog. Exactly. Um, and other other uh, little pieces of trivia I know about you. You uh, had your knee ripped. This is, you know, we all have to ask our kind of Katrina-related questions. In the year of Katrina, you had your knee ripped off by a yoga instructor. Yes, she didn't rip it entirely <laughs> off, but she did rip it up. By trying to place your knee behind your neck, is that? Um, she was pulling my leg behind my head, <laughs> pretty roughly. She was not practicing Reiki. Not, no, that would not be healing energy. That would be violent abuse, really. (laughs) I think you would call that an assault. Um, Yeah. And after Katrina, it sounds like you left um, town like many people. You spent some time in Canada, which actually has a very strong kind of folk singer-songwriter community. What was your experience like up there? Short-lived, actually. Um, I had... I mean, I think like a lot of people, I, after Bush took office, whether whether or not you believe he's elected is probably the subject of an entire other podcast. The second time I said, I'm moving to Canada. And then after Katrina, after the federal flood, when I saw everybody sitting on rooftops, I just, I just felt heartbroken. And I was like, that's it. I can't really be in this country anymore. I mean, I really felt like space seemed like I just felt like the the little the part of me that was a little kid that that was still in there going my country tis of thee just felt sick and I wanted not to be in this country so and I love Montreal I wanted to speak French Um, I've always loved Montreal and I have friends there and right before I left um, a friend of my mother said do you always run away from things and I was deeply offended and I said I'm not running away this is a plan I've had this plan in place and since then, Bush got you know and then the night I got there I looked around and I thought god damn it 
I am running away. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to stay. And I also, at that point, I had been living in New York, and I had a well-established band in New York. And right before I moved, I fell in love. And so then I had a boyfriend across the border. So I was just always trekking back and forth. And so I didn't end up staying very long. And also, as you know, living in New Orleans thins your blood. Like I went to college in upstate New York, and I grew up in Virginia, and I grew up with winter. But I can no longer tolerate cold <laughs> at all. And September 1st came, and I had been out of town, but I came back to Montreal, and it was full-on autumn. And I was like, degrees. don't we have six more weeks of summer? And they were like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I'm going to start packing. I can't, I can't deal with this, you guys. So they froze you out. To yeah, return, pretty much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let people ask you questions, but I do, oh, do want to ask one more nationality-related question. And a little bit of a request. Okay. I understand you can gargle three different national anthems. Yes. <laughs> and you do have a second set. Just saying. Which anthems and which are you going to play on the, on, on the microphone? Um, and, and how did you, what's the prep on that? You know, like a lot I of mean, parties singers where you're challenged. Okay. Salt water and just... <laughs> Maybe having a weird mind. <laughs> really? Do you want to hear okay. one right and now? And which audience, crowd, do we want to hear this? <laughs> okay. I'm not entirely sure that I know the entire melody for O Canada anymore, so. <laughs> Let's, uh, no Canadians here. No, no Canadians. Canadians? All right, well, I'll give you a choice. My three are O Canada. The Star Spangled Banner and the Marseillaise, which is... Ooh, that's got to be good. I'm going to Marseillaise? Yes, yes. <clears throat> get nice and close. Are you ready? <laughs> we got to get this on the mics. Don't make me laugh, you guys. <laughs> This is a long song. questions after that <laughs> I feel like even the people on the podcast can see me blushing <laughs> hey bonjour bonjour um so I've seen you perform a bunch over 10 plus years yes um and I know you always what I like about your performances you always tell stories 
Um, and there's this real close connection between the song and the story. You have these great stories that really connect to that song. So, and you say that you write a lot of songs. So I'm wondering if you have a process. Do you, like, every day say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour? Or is it, like you said before, where you just, you're, like, talking to your dog a lot and things just come, come through? <clears throat> Sometimes... Um, this is something I've been grappling with lately because I was very, very good about having a writing process for a while and it's gotten shipped away at and I've been struggling with how to get back at it. So for years, probably from 2007 until maybe last year, I did something called the morning pages for, it came, comes from Julia Cameron's book, um, The Artist's Way. You start your day I mean, you don't have to do it in the morning, but she recommends it. You write three pages longhand. I mean, you can type it if you want, but she recommends you do it by hand. Um, just off the top of your head. It really can be anything. It can be, I'm so hungover. Don't know when I'm ever going to have sex again. I'm so bored. This coffee is bad, blah, blah, blah. But the idea is you're essentially skimming off the top of your head. And it is astonishing how often you'll be like, blah, 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 whoop. Like, and out comes the song. That song, um, To Get Over, which I think it's track one on the record, came like that. Um, and it also is good because it gets you in the habit of just writing every day, which is, as any writer will tell you, important to do. Um, I was talking with Kelsey May about this. She was here on the show. One problem I've been having and that I, th I think almost every artist I know who's enjoying some degree of success seems to have um, is that as you get busier and you spend so much time answering emails and negotiating contracts and setting up dates and backing and forthing and blying and blying that all of a sudden the time necessary for writing becomes harder and harder to get and part of my process such as it is seems to be having time where I don't feel like I'm waking up with that morning scream of panic or where every bit of my time is being clawed at, like where I could be like, oh, I'm going to go for a walk and then I don't really have something to do. And so I've been writing less than I would like and trying to figure out how to be busy and still write. Oh, I have a follow-up. Okay. So the follow-up has um, nothing to do with the previous question. Okay. <laughs> um, I love Ty Fi Sky. Oh, thank you. Any uh, reunion? I don't think so. Um, I wish. I mean, I, I have I have thoughts sometimes about putting it back together, but um, Tim Summer's sort of doing his own thing and hard to reach, and I can't imagine doing it without him. But maybe one can dream. I would love it. What, what I loved about it is that I knew you first as a singer-songwriter, and then you started doing that. I loved oh, that, great. too. <laughs> you don't and get stuck in that one little box. I, I know. So. I was, and I really miss it. Maybe someday. Maybe. Uh, hi. Um, I'm repeating myself a little bit because we talked a little bit, but I'm also, I also grew up on a farm outside of Virginia, so I feel a little bit of a connection. Okay. Um, but... I am wondering, I mean, first of all, I really appreciate this because even though we live in the greatest music city, sometimes I miss that sort of Americana 
guy or girl with a guitar sounds. So thank you. Um, but I'm I'm wondering what your what your music influences were, why you became a musician, and then uh, two parts, I guess. Why what brought you to New Orleans? Oh, okay. My many many musical influences, and I always forget some when asked this question, and then feel bad about the ones I've forgotten. Um, but really the most important musical influences were my uncles who we used to, um, my family has a house in the mountains outside Charlottesville up on Afton Mountain by the Skyline Drive. And on Saturdays, we would have a hayride to the top of the mountain. Everybody still does it. Um, I mean, it's a shared family house. And we'd go up there and light a big bonfire and cook hot dogs and hamburgers, which I don't eat anymore because I'm vegetarian, so now I make them cook veggie burgers. And then, like, stuff ourselves with s'mores. And um, then, as it started to get dark and all the stars came out, my uncle Peter Stanley and my uncle Alfred Scott would get out their guitars, and we'd all wrap up in blankets, and they'd start singing. And um, Peter especially was... He had homesteaded in Alaska with his wife, Ginny. They built a cabin and raised, like, three little boys there. He had climbed really big mountains. He had gone to Harvard. He'd shared stages with Pete Seeger and Joan Baez. He's, I mean, he was a hero to so many of us, and he was a great flat-picking guitarist and with this beautiful, deep voice. And we all knew the songs because we'd all been singing them you know, all of our lives, and everybody would sing along, and I still, you know, every summer get to pretty much get to go back to the place where I first thought, this is what I want to do, and I still get to talk to my uncle, uh, Alfred is still alive, and be like, it's your fault, I could have been a lawyer like everybody else, you know, like, look at their nice cars, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, um, so it was mostly them, I just, I don't know, I, I just knew I wanted to play guitar, like, like my uncles, and, and their sons played too. Well, Peter's sons, Alfred has daughters. And, um, but then my mom listened to Waylon and Willie and Emmy Lou um, and Loretta. And um, when I was 13, she sat me down like in front of the record player and said, all right, it's time for you to hear Nina Simone. It was like my musical bat mitzvah. She used to go hear, she used to go hear Nina Simone for like, five dollars when she lived in New York when in her 20s all the time at like little clubs and so it was a really big deal and I remember sitting there and being like I've never heard anything like this in my life and she was like you've never heard anything like this in your life and I'm feeling good And she played the opera every, um, the Met broadcast every weekend. Um, and Harry Belafonte and Nat King Cole. Um, my mom had great taste, has great taste. Um, so those were my earliest influences. I remember once coming home from college and my mom had gotten this CD of Brazilian pop music. And so... That was a long answer. And then the reason I came to New Orleans, I have this theory that if you're meant to move to New Orleans, it'll kind of call out to you. 
for a long time, like a beacon being like, come it's to It's a place you either really, really love it or you kind of hate it, right? Yeah, I guess right. so. But I also think one thing that bugs me lately is there's a lot of, anytime anybody gets into a disagreement online, somebody's bound to say, oh, you're not from here. And pre-Katrina, I don't recall us being so inhospitable. And I know, I mean, I get as annoyed by the changes post-storm as anybody. But when I moved here, my neighbor, who was a local and, you know, was living in the house that she was born in, literally gave me a 10-page handwritten like list of the best place to get everything, like from a bikini wax to my tires changed to fish. It was you, amazing. You might need all three on the same day. I know, yeah. theoretically. Yeah. Um, regarding the inhospitality. Inhospi oh, well, I point being, I had come down here when I, right before I graduated from college, and um, I had just cut my hair really, really, really short, and everybody as I walked through the streets of the quarter, would go, hey, Sinead. <laughs> and I That's was like, a good compliment, I, I love it here, but I think I'm too scared to move here. Um, and then I was engaged. So my now ex-husband got a job teaching at Loyola, and I moved with him. And we moved on August 1st, and I truly thought I had ruined my life. It was hotter than I had ever been before, and we had no plumbing. I had to walk three blocks to the coffee shop to use the bathroom, and I was just like, what have I done? Oh my God, what have I done? Well, you know, they say it's the most functional city of the Caribbean, so that There's an like ocean in the Caribbean. This is true, yeah. this is very true. And then two weeks later, I was driving home, and I got stuck in traffic, and I was looking up at I was stuck on St. Charles and I was looking all around me and I was, it just went through my head clear as day. I don't ever want to live anywhere else. And I went home and I was like, hey, guess what happened? And I told him and he was like, that's so peculiar because the same thing happened to me today. And as far as I know, he still lives here too. <laughs> so <laughs> if New Orleans is going to get you, it's going to get you. Yeah, you know, what I've noticed here is that the folks who are kind of hostile about like, how veteran are you of a New Orleanian, or not actually from here. Every person I've met who was born and raised here has been incredibly welcoming. It's the like, I have my street cred after 15 years crowd that I'm like, I'm sorry, man, I'm living here now. So you're just gonna have to get over it. Um, so um, if anyone doesn't have any more questions, one more. Oh yeah. All right, my question was, um, wow, what was the first song you ever wrote, and what was it about? Oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Isn't there another question you'd like to ask? <laughs> I have to answer this question. You would have to waterboard me to make me answer this question. <laughs> Yes, I could sing I could it? sing it, there but I won't. Um, I remember it. How old were you? About twelve, and it's legitimately one of the worst songs in the world. Like I don't think I will ever forget it, though I keep hoping. And and it didn't stop me from playing it for everyone. It was a song. All right, let's see if I can synopsize this in a way that doesn't shame me entirely. No pressure. It's being recorded. Yeah, I know. 
and sent out all over the world to people cleaning up rabbit poop and having sex. Um, hopefully not at the same time. Although I don't know, whatever people are into. Um, so I was 12. I believe it was called the well, okay. summer when I was 15. And it was about my boyfriend. I had not at that time ever had a boyfriend who had died in a car crash. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> After a very romantic summer driving around and making out by the sea and cut off. It was basically like dirty dancing if at the end Greece, he, had, he had died in a car crash. Yeah. And after I played it for everyone, it might not have been as bad as I remember because I'm so mortified by the memory. Everyone was really, really nice to me for a long time in the music class and it turned out they all thought it was true. <laughs> and I have not actually ever told this story before. So the I don't know which is worse, the gargling or telling this story. It's okay, it's all on tape right now. Yeah, I know. I, I don't know why I feel like hiding my face is helping <laughs> with the podcast. I haven't even had a drink and you guys have gotten all this out of me. I know. You're easy. You're an easy one. Well, thank you Thanks. so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Do you want to share any plans, any albums coming out before you play another set? Um, Big shows? Um, probably. I just updated my website, and as a result, I can't remember anything. <laughs> um, but if you go to alexandrascott.com, you should be able to check the calendar and find all kinds of exciting events. And I'll be touring around this summer. And as always, if you are interested in having me play a house show, at your house or rabbit hutch, you should email me because I'm always looking to add more. <laughs> that sounds great. Thank you so much again for stopping by. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Milo's Music Parlor. Thanks so much for joining us at home, at work, on your phone, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing. This has been a production of It's New Orleans and Milo Records New Orleans and sponsored by WTUL. And a very special thanks to today's guest, Alexandra Scott. So soundly like I want to sleep. Our show today was produced by Kim Rudin and Taylor Smith. Our technical director is Taylor Smith. Our logistics director is Mark Tobler. Our theme song was composed by Taylor Smith and performed by the Roman Jasmine. Milo's Music Parlor was recorded today at Tessology Art Cafe, located on the historic O.C. Haley Boulevard in New Orleans. For more information on how to attend one of our live performances, check us out at www.milorecordsneworleans.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. You can follow us on Twitter at It's New Orleans. You can like us on Facebook. We're at It's New Orleans. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to our other Milo Music Parlor shows on our website, itsneworleans.com, as well as our other shows, Happy Hour, Out to Lunch, Mindset, True the Game, Midnight Menu Plus One, and Louisiana Eats. Milo's Music Parlor is produced by IMO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and Milo Records New Orleans. For everyone here at Milo's Music Parlor, thanks for joining us today.
Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees. 